Hello and welcome to Grassfed and Grace Led Podcast. I'm Maddie Rose and I'm back from another long hiatus. We, you know, had a really busy September. We went to the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. Um, you know, just had a really busy month and before that I'd actually hurt my neck so it was hard to record at a computer desk. Just sitting at the desk was hurting my neck. So, you know, thanks to the Lord and a chiropractor and some time off, you know, my neck is better and I'm less busy this month than I was last month. So here I am back with you friends, ready to record some more episodes for you, and I'm super excited about today's topic. It wasn't really on my list of things that I was planning on doing when I started back up again, but in my own time, um, you know, with my children as they're getting older, I really wanted to study uh, the origins of Halloween and uh, kind of go in depth on that myself and with them because I felt like it was really important uh, for us to know, you know, the history of Halloween because my children are interested in participating in things like trick-or-treating and things like that with their friends and, you know, we want to make educated decisions so that we can discern, you know, what is the will of God for our family, that we can be God honoring and God glorifying in what we do, but not fall into some, you know, superstitious uh, beliefs or respond or react out of fear that sometimes we can, or to be um, legalistic maybe about certain things that we don't do. Now, I'm not saying that somebody who doesn't um, celebrate or participate in any Halloween events are legalistic or fearful or superstitious. Um, many people can have really good reasons uh, for why they don't. I just didn't want our reasons for or against um, participating in anything Halloween related at all to be any of those things. We don't, you know, respond out of fear. Uh, We don't want to be superstitious. We want to have knowledge and wisdom, not ignorance. And uh, we definitely don't want to be legalistic, but uh, we certainly can't Um, just ignore the things of scripture and the prohibitions therein. So it takes a bit of work on the part of a Christian to be discerning in this department. And going forward from here, it certainly is not a one-size-fits-all type thing. You know, what you and your family do is different. Your children are different. Your ages are different. Your personal experiences with the holiday are different. Uh, maybe even the place that you live is different, and that can affect your decisions as well. So uh, certainly this episode is not going to tell you straight up, you know, what you should be doing in your own situation, but hopefully I can equip you with some historical knowledge that you possibly don't know about Halloween, and that can help inform some of your decisions, and, you know, I'll go through with you, Lord willing, um, a couple verses and some takeaways that we can have um, on the topic of Halloween. So one thing I didn't really expect when I was going to or when I started studying uh, the history of Halloween is I didn't expect how many different rabbit trails I would end up on. Um, there's really quite a bit of um, history to 
the holiday in a sense, you know, kind of how we got to where we are now from the origins. And there's a lot of different, um, oh, areas in history, time periods, different holidays, different practices, different cultures that kind of influence what we think of as Halloween today. And so it's certainly not a straightforward, you know, we started here, now this is where we're at. Um, there's also a lot out there that's kind of a misinformation or maybe are, are just a lot of conjecture on the part of people that have written or even historians that have written about things. Um, you know, the first case in point is you'll hear often that the uh, Celtic um, practice or holiday, if you will, celebration of Samhain, which is spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, it's actually Samhain, um, you'll hear a lot from people in different articles that Halloween has its roots in Samhain, and a lot of that that I found um, reading other people was that a lot of that is kind of conjectural. Of course, it was a harvest festival uh, type uh, celebration for the Celtic people who were pagans, and they did do certain things. Some things we do know that they did were like bonfires and not just like what we think of as a big fire, but they would actually, um, I imagine, have like their Druid priests or somebody throw in some bones and, and read the bones that come out of the fire, uh, which would be a form of divination. And so they would do that in the bonfire. So there was certainly some sort of pagan, you know, practice kind of coinciding with this harvest festival, but the emphasis was certainly... Um, from what we can tell historically on harvest itself, and there was probably some level of spiritual um, kind of atmosphere there happening. Um, but a lot of what we do read about and hear from others is kind of conjectural people taking things that happen later on in history and kind of uh, putting that back on earlier times and thinking that that's what they also did then. And the fact is, is that we really just don't have that much information. So a lot of times what you would hear of Samhain practices being related to Halloween practices might not actually have originated in in that. So there is that, but it, it was a significant um, holiday for the Celtic people. But again, the Celtic people were up, you know, in kind of the Ireland and Scottish areas. So it certainly wasn't Europe wide. Um, but it, it did have some significance, especially for those of us who are Western and especially North America. A lot of us get our cultural practices from um, Britain in particular. And so a lot of what goes on in Britain and how they celebrated what later became Halloween has quite a bit to do with how, you know, we got the holiday that we do, but it still differs. So I will do my best to go through this in a way that makes sense and is clear to you without giving too much information. I've had to weed out quite a bit of my own rabbit trails because there really is so much here, but I'm going to do my best to try to give you a good, you know, overview of the history. So, of course, we, we have Samhain, but um, I, I tend to stand in the camp that it, it's not necessarily a precursor to, to Halloween, but what I would say is that it certainly would have influenced um, the culture of the people that were celebrating what later became Halloween, which is All um, Hallows Day or the Eve of All Hallows Day, which I'll get into shortly. 
So certainly some of those kind of cultural practices and even pagan practices um, might have influenced them, but I'm not sure that you could say it was a direct link. Some people will say that the Catholic Church replaced the pagan um, celebrations with Christian ones to try to stop people from being pagan and practicing pagan things, and that may or may not be true in certain instances. From this one, it's really less clear because, you know, the history of All Saints Day comes from Rome and the Roman Catholic Church, but it really originated in Rome itself and was not kind of empire-wide, as you will, Rome as in the Catholic Rome, no longer um, Rome as you might think of like the classical Rome, but but under the, the Pope who was in the Rome, uh, in Rome, he um, established, it was, so it was Pope Boniface IV, and he established what was called All Saints Day later, but it came with when he consecrated the Pantheon in Rome to the saints and the martyrs, and they called it the Day of the Holy Apostles and of all the saints, martyrs, and confessors, and it was a day to uh, remember and memorialize the saints and the martyrs, especially a lot of people would contemplate, you know, various martyrs in history and important um, people in the Christian faith and its history. And that was actually put into place on May 13th, and that's when the Pantheon was consecrated. And then later it was moved to November 1st um, by Pope Gregory Third when he consecrated or dedicated St. Peter's Basilica to the martyrs and the saints. So um, that was then moved to November 1st, but it wasn't um, worshipped or not worshipped, but it wasn't practiced um, empire-wide at that time. It was really just kind of a, a Rome locale type celebration. And you did have variations of what became known as All Saints Day throughout the Catholic, the Roman Catholic kind of influence in the churches, but it it does seem like it varied day to day. Of course, it started on May 13th. I saw one source say that in Ireland, they chose the day of April 20th, and they there's some indication that they kind of resisted the change to November 1st because it fell around the time of Samhain. Again, sometimes that could be conjecture, and I didn't find anything, you know, super solid that said that anywhere else, but it was from a history of All Saints Day according to the Catholic Church on one of their websites, so it had some good information there from their perspective, so that was interesting, but what happened is later on, you had Charlemagne, who was a Frankish uh, king and emperor who kind of reunited a lot of Western Rome and Central Rome again, Um, after the fall of Rome, and he was a really unifying uh, figure for them, and in that time frame, you had Pope Gregory IV, who then made November 1st um, a holy day of obligation by the decree of Pope Gregory IV, so it now became um, kind of Rome empire-wide for the Holy Roman Emperor to uh, celebrate All Saints Day Um, on November 1st. So that's where it comes from. And if you're wondering where we get the word hallow, hallow is a word that means a a saint or a holy person. 
So when you hear All Hallows Day, it's the same as saying All Saints Day. And so um, Halloween is kind of a um, diminutive form of All Hallows Day Eve. So it'd be Hallows Eve, and then we get Halloween. So um, it was a, a Saints Day, and it started out as a way to, of course, remember the martyrs and memorialize them. But then, you know, as doctrine kind of shifted and emphasis changed, context changed, it became a lot more about kind of honoring saints maybe differently. You had kind of the rise of different uh, saint cults, if you will, in different regions or like different areas and um, monasteries maybe honored a certain saint over another So that kind of contributed to its growth, and then by the end of the first millennium, you have the inclusion of All Souls Day, which was then put into place November 2nd. All Souls Day kind of originated out of a certain um, monastery, and then it kind of was officially adopted there um, at the end of the first millennium, I believe in the year uh, 998. So you had that put in, and, and All Souls Day really had a strong uh, correlation with the doctrine of purgatory that had arisen in the church, and the emphasis on on taking a particular day to set aside to um, pray for the souls that were in purgatory. So that's what All Souls Day was, and so then you had All Saints Day, November 1st, and then All Souls Day, November 2nd. Now, sometimes people will relate uh, Dia de los Muertos, which is um, a Mexican holiday, and it falls on November 2nd, although it can be celebrated from October 31st to around November 6th, depending on, you know, what region you're in. And there is some connection there. I did a little bit of studying on it. Uh, It was another rabbit trail, of course. But there is some debate among uh, scholars and historians on whether or not, um, you know, Dia de los Muertos has its origins in kind of an indigenous Aztec practice or if it, you know, was a later fabrication. But what you can see no matter what, whether, you know, it really was something that was pretty much practiced before the Spanish came or if it was kind of a fabrication of that, the objective of the holiday itself was to kind of make a more nationalistic kind of pull from Aztec type Um, beliefs, myths, images, um, you know, that type of thing. So it it wasn't really meant to be, it's not a different form necessarily of All Souls Day intentionally, but um, it, it might arguably have been actually more influenced by European practices of something like All Souls Day than true Aztec beliefs itself, but it's really kind of adjacent to this and it's its own thing but I, I have you know I've lived in New Mexico for a lot of my life I grew up there and so there is quite a bit of that type of you know the skulls and things like that that come from Mexico because you know we're so close so it's kind of growing you have different movies you know that have kind of come out more recently that have kind of made that more of a thing um, in people's minds than probably they never heard about it so just a side note there but if you're familiar at all, you know, with Reformation Day, a lot of people, especially in the Reformed 
um, Protestant tradition like to celebrate Reformation Day and will often just try to replace, you know, Halloween festivities with Reformation Day. And we do that because Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg on October 31st. And the reason he chose October 31st is because it was Hallow's Eve. And he knew, and his theses by and large have to do with indulgences. And that had was going hand in hand with purgatory because indulgences are getting you out of, you know, certain punishments or penalties in purgatory or it was for loved ones that were deceased that in purgatory and the church was very much abusing the system. They were selling indulgences and raising money to to build things in their um, churches and things like that um, in order. So they were selling indulgences in order to do that. And Luther really did not take kindly to that. You know, at this time, he was not necessarily, um, he certainly wasn't a Protestant yet. He was trying to reform the church. He was still part of the Catholic Church and considered himself to be so. Um, he really hadn't gone off on his, um, you know, real deep dive on the, on the truths of scripture and things like that. But that's kind of what set that all off. And it really had to do with the sale of indulgences, which he absolutely protested and abhorred. And he nailed his 95 theses to the door on October 31st because of All Saints Day so and All Souls Day. So that's why it's on October 31st. He didn't just like kind of get a little burr up his butt and decide to do that. It, it was for a reason that he did it on October 31st. So after the Protestant Reformation has kind of gone on for a little bit in England, you have um, another event that happens that doesn't seem like it's related to Halloween, but it didn't influence it. And that's um, Guy Fawkes Day or the Gunpowder Treason Plot Day. I didn't know a whole lot about this too much. I knew a little bit about it, but I'm not English and uh, I'm American, so I wasn't really familiar with this history, but it was a plot by the Catholics to assassinate the Protestant King James and his parliament. The plot was foiled. Guy Fawkes was arrested. He was one of the conspirators that was trying to blow up um, parliament and the king, and it became this big celebration and truthfully a very anti-Catholic day on behalf of the Protestants in England, where in later years they would make like effigies of the Pope and things like that in Burnham. There was a lot of, you know, bonfires, not in the sense that they were trying to throw bones into the fire and, and read and divine things, but there was certainly kind of a growing trend of maybe vandalism and just kind of excuse for nonsense and destruction of property and maybe kind of just extreme partying in a sense um, in the name of Protestantism, quote unquote. I would argue that, you know, true God-desiring Christians would not necessarily participate in that, but it definitely became a very... um, religiously charged season, and that was on November 5th in 1609, I believe. Um, And that kind of corresponded and truthfully kind of eclipsed the Halloween-type activities. So um, it really kind of gave rise to a later issue, which I'll talk about here shortly, but kind of the rise of vandalism and trickery and things like that that would start to happen around Halloween. 
So in the meanwhile, and this is something that I couldn't really pin down where it started and where it came from, all along this time during certain holidays, at least in England and and that area, you had this practice called souling, where during certain holidays, like Hallow, all you know, Hallow's Day and and possibly All Souls Day and even Christmas and stuff like that, you had the pra- practice of souling, which isn't what it sounds like. But it was children and the poor would go around and sing songs and um, do that and go to people's houses and the people would give them these soul cakes which eventually had crosses on them, and they would be kind of like an almsgiving where you're kind of giving good treats to the poor or the children, and that was just kind of a cultural practice they did. I would love to dig further on that, and I did do quite a lot of digging, but it was like the more I dug, the more information there was, so maybe next year, Lord willing, I'll have a even more in-depth series on this topic, but I found that kind of fascinating. A lot of, um, you know, our practices of caroling at Christmas, possibly even setting out cookies and milk for Santa, may have that uh, link to the practice of souling. So it was really like a form of almsgiving. So all along you have children and the poor being given these soul cakes and going around to different houses and some of them would sing songs and get treats um, you know, fruit, that type of stuff. So that was going on. And then you have Guy Fawkes Day, which kind of introduces vandalism. And then eventually, as we see later, we have kind of this development of um, a lot of trickery and stuff that was happening on Halloween. Then somewhere along the line, you also have the lanterns that came up. Some people will trace us all the way back to Samhain. Some people won't. Um, but they would carve out turnips and carry them around as handheld lanterns. And that was kind of one of the things at some point faces were carved in them. Some say that if it was linked to Samhain, then it was maybe faces that would try to scare away evil spirits. Or um, others would say that it would be the face with the fire behind it would kind of symbolize the souls in purgatory. So there's some variation and different sources that I read of that, that they would say that's what it was from. And that's partly why we can't say with certainty where it truly did come from. But we do know that they did carry around, you know, hollowed out gourds or turnips as lanterns. And that's where we have the precursor of the jack-o'-lantern. Once that practice kind of came over to Canada and the Americas, uh, we started doing it with pumpkins. So then you have the jack-o'-lantern, and then that kind of took on a mind of its own in later centuries as well. So um, during that time, we also have kind of this uh, development, probably at this point, you know, we're talking the 18th and 19th centuries, like late 1700s, you know, the 1800s, where there's kind of this resurgence and regrowth and interest in the Celtic um, practices. You know, you've got kilts, bagpipes, tartans, things like that. Um, I know, like, Queen Victoria and her husband, like, they, they love Scotland, and they were really into, like, the Celtic stuff. And so there was kind of this growing trend. There was uh, Robert Burns, he had a poem on Halloween, and he was kind of in that whole strain of like Celtic revival stuff. I did try to read it. I couldn't understand all of it because it's written in 
I don't know. I'm not even sure what, if that was Gaelic or what it was, but, um, you know, I, I couldn't fully understand, but some of the lines I, I could get. So that apparently solidified a lot of what kind of the imagery came up later there in the, uh, 1700 time frame of what Halloween was like. And so the, the Celtic stuff would really take hold in Canada where people were, you know, they would sit around, around Halloween and kind of sit around fires and tell stories and kind of fun fairy stories and witches, which weren't exactly like our witches today, um, that we think of as a witch, but kind of that those types of stories would be told around fires and there would be some dressing up and some drama and it would just be kind of one of those things. So that kind of took hold and spread throughout certain parts of North America and that led to, it seems like, a lot of the kind of dressing up and, and wearing masks and things like that. So there's some overlap there. And then you have, um, oh, just a side note on the witches, because I said it's not like ours. I did some looking up um, Marsha Montenegro from Christian Answers for the New Age. She has a ton of information on the occult. I will link that below in the podcast. But she does a really good job of pointing out that modern witchcraft, Wicca, occult practices, these are all really kind of new and more modern inventions. A lot of them will claim like an ancient link, but um, there's really no evidence for that. So they're kind of just, because a lot of that was lost, you know, like what was done early on that was lost. So a lot of what they're doing, they're just kind of trying to reimagine and kind of fantasize and romanticize this stuff. So um, I will link that in, in the description below if you want to dig further that way, but, um, I think that's just an important side note that, you know, it's, it wasn't like the witches started Halloween, like, thousands of years ago or anything like that, so, um, that's interesting there, but in the, uh, early 1800s, you had Washington Irving, who wrote Sleepy Hollow, Edgar Allan Poe, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, and then by the end of the century in 1898, Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, and he kind of solidified the modern vampire. What we think of as a vampire really comes from the book Dracula, and of course it's been, you know, now people have made him like glittery and shiny, and I don't know what all that's about. I, I'm really not into like vampire stuff, so um, I don't really know what all the things going on today about vampires are, but I do know that whatever was a vampire in people's minds before in kind of folklore legend was not necessarily what Bram Stoker made Dracula out to be. And, you know, you can go back and forth on what his reasons, you know, his symbolism and all that stuff in his book was for or against. But that's really where we got the modern uh, vampire kind of imagery, the sucking of blood and that type of stuff um, really came from that book. And so you have in the 1800s kind of this emphasis on um, kind of the darker, creepier type stuff. You know, you kind of get the black cat kind of being solidified as an image of Halloween. Um, just kind of the darker, like the crows and the anything black really kind of came um, up quite a bit in that time period. So, uh, and kind of like solidified in the cultural mind, that's what Halloween type stuff was. And um, then, of course, you had this, this growing um, trend of, especially in teenage boys and young men, who would kind of take the night to go out and trick, you know, and do these pranks. And 
in some ways they were kind of innocent pranks. Like I read one description of they would they would fill socks with flour and throw them at a man in a black suit or something so that he would get like powdered with flour on him. And I kind of thought of like teepeeing and, and egging people's houses kind of in that strain. They would disassemble gates from people's property and like put them in the town square and, and different things like that. But it kind of increasingly got out of hand where they would take the gates, pile them up in the middle of the city, and then all of a sudden you have tons and tons of gates piled up in the middle of this or the city or the town and they would have to go through their gates. There was later at later points, you know, there was um, cutting down of telephone poles and tipping of outhouses and uh, switching store signs, which maybe wasn't as less of a deal, but then you had breaking windows and, and different things like that, where it really did start to escalate um, in, in the realm of vandalism, especially by the time of the Great Depression in the 1920s, 30s time frame. You really had um, the height, probably, um, in our more recent history of kind of that vandalism really kind of came in that time frame. And what I think is also important is to realize that, you know, historically and even now, a lot of times the eaves of a holiday, especially the religious holidays, were always kind of times of debauchery and, um, you know, licentiousness, if you will. Uh, from people, you've got Mardi Gras, for example, you know, uh, here in Louisiana, you know, Mardi Gras is kind of a big deal. It's where I live now. Um, that comes the day before Lent. And so, uh, Fat Tuesdays before Ash Wednesday and, and the eaves of even Christmas, historically, people would kind of get rowdy and act and behave certain ways. So, um, you know, that was, that was an issue historically and it is an issue now and I think it goes down to the heart of people you know if if you're truly wanting to celebrate things you're not going to just try to get it all out of your system you know the night before and and so the same is true for Halloween you have Guy Fawkes Day and all that kind of feeding into it but it really comes to the heart of where people are coming from and um you know why are they trying to behave this way and and I think it's that people are just finding any excuse to do it and so people get rowdy and they party and and that was an excuse for teen boys um you know Halloween to do pranks and sometimes take them too far and so it became a a really big issue and so then a lot of different like clubs and societies like Lions Clubs things like that um I believe even at some point YMCA was kind of involved different things like that to try to really get um, kids to, well, older kids, teenage boys, young, young people to behave and stop destroying people's property on that night. So while you still had children who kind of were still getting the treats thing kind of in the, you know, same strain as the soul cakes and things like that, they were, you know, definitely going around, um, to different houses or things like that to get tasty treats and, they were dressing up in costumes at that point for sure. And then that's when you get the implementation of trick or treat. And that was part of the initiative to kind of clean up or sanitize Halloween and get people to stop um, vandalizing and, and doing those types of things. Um, and and it worked uh, quite, a, quite a bit, you know, in a lot of places it spread throughout America, kind of started in certain regions and spread throughout and... Uh, now we have a generally tame Halloween, I think, for most people. I do think teenagers still tend to kind of uh, maybe find excuses to misbehave that night, but 
it's it's much more tame um, by and large for a lot of places than it used to be. Um, so that's good and that's beneficial. And that's really where we got uh, the modern day, you know, catchphrase trick or treat. And so now you know where we got trick or treating from. And then after this, we have the entrance of Halloween and things like that um, from Hollywood. And Hollywood, just like, you know, some of the books and the writers and the, you know, 1800s did a lot to solidify certain images in our minds about Halloween, kind of like they had done with Santa Claus. But that's a side note. Um, now we have Halloween kind of, uh, you know, being kind of run away with by Hollywood and Hollywood really makes quite a bit of money from Halloween um, related movies and stuff like that. And over the years, you know, it's kind of grown its own um, genre. And and I would say that, of course, Hol Hollywood is really kind of capitalized on the grotesque, the wicked, the evil. You know, it was much more tame earlier on. Um, I remember in my film criticism classes watching some of the older kind of quote-unquote horror movies and there was really nothing that horrifying, you know, giant birds or, you know, blobs and things like that. So um, even the old Dracula movie really wasn't that scary, you know, so, but now um, it certainly changed quite a bit and, um, you know, it's, it's something to consider, of course, kind of moving into that. And and lastly, we have, of course, um, I would say the most recent change in the Halloween practice that at least would be concerning, not that all these things are concerning, but it is a concerning thing, is the sexualization of Halloween costumes, especially for young women. And we've seen, you know, a lot of the costumes, they're not just dressing up to look like another Thing, it's to do it in a sexy way and it's about being as revealing as possible and it's really kind of an excuse to dress up in a certain way and the holiday itself for adults while it used to be much more of a children's holiday has grown quite a bit and um, you know you're hard-pressed as a woman to find a purchasable Halloween costume that's you know extremely revealing and extremely sexualized on purpose. So, you know, that's kind of the newer thing and, and that kind of goes in to what uh, we should consider as Christians as we're doing this, um, you know, thing of trying to figure out should we or should we not celebrate Halloween. Those are things, of course, that we should keep in mind. Um, lastly, though, here kind of on the strain of the history of Halloween, uh, before I really move on to that that kind of topic, is uh, what Halloween isn't. And what it isn't is a Satanist holiday. It was never a Satanist holiday. Um, Satanism itself is kind of a new thing. Now, of course, you could argue, you know, since the fall, you know, anybody who is a pagan is essentially a Satanist. But like outright, Satan worship is certainly not, um, you know, something historically associated with Halloween, and Satanism itself is a newer thing, and Halloween itself was not um, a satanic holiday, although a lot of the more pagan things you could say are, 
Um, but by name, name wise, you know, if anything, the Satanists celebrate Halloween in a sense because they're kind of told to do so because they're told it's this evil, wicked holiday. And of course, they're going to do evil and wicked things and whatever they imagined, quote unquote, Satanism actually is. So that's what they're going to do. And, and on that strain, it's not an evil day. You know, Psalm 118.24 says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. No one day is actually evil. So there's nothing significant about October 31st being an evil day. It's not the devil's day. It's not, I know, a day of evil or this kind of one last attempt for the devil to, the devil to have his way in the world or anything like that. Um, there's plenty of evil and debauchery and wickedness and just terrible things every day of the year. Um, Halloween might bring it to the forefront for some of us, but really it happens all throughout the year and there is no one day that isn't particularly evil. And so doing any, you don't have to be afraid of Halloween. Now that kind of brings us to, you know, thinking these things through. Um, I think one thing is that it's really important for me, and I hope that you agree, that while origins are important, what matters more is how, you know, things are celebrated or seen today in our culture, in our current context. And when you have holidays like this, you know, whether it was pagan, as some would argue, they might say it goes all the way back to Samhain, maybe someone argue that it's truly a Christian holiday and it was instituted by Christians because it's All Saints Day um, or the Eve of All Saints Day. You know, you could argue that, but truthfully, in my opinion, neither of that truly matters because it matters more about how it's celebrated now and in particular how you celebrate it or don't. Um, and so that I think plays into how we kind of figure this out. I think some people can maybe be too quick to say, oh, it's a Christian holiday. We can just do whatever we want because it was originally Christian and it's fine. And maybe other people would be too quick to just completely disregard it and think everything's pagan and, and you're not even saved if you, you know, celebrate Halloween or, you know, you're just, you know, being wicked if you do anything, if you even dress up around Halloween or get candy around Halloween, like, you know, so we can be kind of extreme and I see in that way that we can be uh, superstitious you know, there's a lot of superstition kind of surrounding Halloween, kind of intentionally in the imagery, you know, like the kind of black cat, bad luck type stuff. But we're Christians, we're not called to be superstitious. So we also don't want to be superstitious about the, the holiday itself. And so it really requires us to do a lot of work and uh, really truthfully pray and discern things. Um, and that leads us to, as a Christian, we should be submissive to scripture and the word of God, because that's, you know, if you're going to ask, well, what is, you know, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? Well, we have the word of God. And while you might not have a straight answer from scripture, like verbatim, the answer you want to hear, if you study the word of God and you know the things that God has called us to do and not do as Christians, then that can help inform your decisions to do things or not do things. And so, of course, you know, on the topic of, say, uh, witchcraft, things like that, we have Deuteronomy 18, verses 10, 
uh, to 14, where it says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them, being the pagans or the heathens or those who practice that before the Canaanites when this was, or the Israelites when they were given this, um, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. Listen to the fortune tellers and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. In Second Chronicles 33, 6, um, he talks about Manasseh, who burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. And the Bible says here, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So it's extremely clear from the Old Testament that um, sorcery, divination, fortune-telling, interpreting omens like you know, the bonfire thing, like throwing bones in there, that's all um, an abomination to the Lord, inquiring of the dead. So that would, of course, things like the Ouija board, whether or not you believe it's actually doing what it's doing, just even doing the Ouija board, for example, would be something that Christians ought not to be doing. You just shouldn't even be messing with it. So there are certain things that we certainly should not be doing. And um, I think that's pretty clear from scripture, I think, to try to get around certain things like that. Um, are difficult. And in Galatians, New Testament, uh, Galatians 19 to 20, you have now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. And then envy um, in verse 21, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So there's a whole slew of things in there. Things like jealousy and stuff like that. We're also called not to do um, drunkenness, orgies. But linked in... Um, gathered all in that same collection of things that we ought not to be doing because they're the works of the flesh. Uh, you have idolatry and sorcery. So certainly, um, even if you want to kind of call it cutesy, uh, you know, it, we should be careful, especially if you have children. Um, this is my caution, is what are you desensitizing your children to when when you allow them to maybe dress up as certain things or partake in certain kind of fake seance -y type stuff like whether or not it's true or not doing it um that i think you're sending mixed signals at, at the very least you're sending mixed signals to your children that these things are okay and that christians should be doing those quite frankly we shouldn't now of course there's like if you're in any sort of homeschool group or anything like that you're probably very familiar with the debates that arise from like harry potter whether or not you should read it people have very strong opinions on both i'm not even going to comment on it um but it does bring up some questions that i think are worthwhile people asking and really you know figuring that that out and and really thinking in a submissive way that we know 
that we should be doing things that glorify God, like 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is what we are called to do as Christians. And I do think, I do believe that you can uh, trick or treat to the glory of God. You know, some people use that as a way to meet their neighbors, to maybe evangelize. Some people will hand out um, uh, tracks, like gospel tracks with candy. I've heard it. I've heard it recommended. Don't just give them a gospel track. Like, make sure you give them candy too. Uh, things like that. It's a people will stand out and evangelize because you have people coming to your home, people you would never talk to, um, coming to your home. And so it could be a great opportunity to really evangelize and and just meet your neighbors and form those relationships with people you've maybe never met or hardly ever see. And so there are some good redeeming qualities, I think, that you can pull from. I don't believe that there, personally, I don't believe there's any harm in costume dressing up, period. But it might depend on what, what you're dressing up as. Again, you know, I think there's a lot of really kind of ugly and you know, very wicked attempting costumes, and you have to determine, is this glorifying to God? And I think that some of us really do kind of like the Halloween stuff and the creepy stuff, and they like scary movies, and again, it kind of depends on the scary movie, because jump scares in themselves, like being jumping, getting scared about stuff necessarily isn't wicked or evil, but is it glorifying wickedness? Is it glorifying evil? So it kind of depends on the movie or, you know, the show or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, so there is a gray area, you know, the area here of Christian liberty, the important things that things are not inherently evil, like Paul talks about, you know, meat sacrificed to idols. If they're consecrated to idols, they're, they're consecrated in nothing. The meat itself is not, is not actually consecrated to an idol because an idol is nothing. And, um, you know, he says that so you can, those people could eat meat without, you know, a conscious issue, but maybe somebody that's been more involved in something like the occult or certain evil practices would be more sensitive to things like that. And really, um, I find quite a bit of people that have been involved in the occult or occult like new age, things like that. They are much more hesitant to like things like Harry Potter or allow their kids to read them because they just can't help but see it. So, you know, take that for what you will. Um, but, I do think that we do a a strong disservice to ourselves and especially our children if we are too lenient and too quick to just disregard the warnings of scripture and too quick to maybe poo-poo what others are saying and warnings are given and kind of look down on people for uh, warning you and cautioning you against that. And, you know, the act of submission does require us to give up certain things that we love and enjoy and Many of us love and enjoy a lot of things about Halloween that maybe we ought not to. But on on the same thread, but different side, you know, it's also important that we don't look down on others who are celebrating Halloween maybe differently than us. Maybe you're a person who doesn't do it at all whatsoever. And maybe, you know, you're judging your friend because they do go trick-or-treating or they do um, go even to you know, Halloween parties or haunted houses or things like that. So we need to really focus on ourselves and our own families. And, um, you know, again, it's not a one size fits all. We're going to have different sensitivities. There's reasons that are not even having to do necessarily with scripture that people don't like about Halloween. Maybe it's a sensory issue for you or your children. Maybe it's the candy and you don't want tons of sugar in your house. Um, you know, maybe it's, 
maybe people are, it's getting dangerous where you're at and you don't really want to do it. Like maybe you don't like your dogs barking and people ringing your doorbell a thousand times at night. You know, there's a lot of different reasons that people don't like Halloween. And so we need to be quick not to judge and quick to give uh, grace and mercy to one another, but we should also exhort one another to glorify God. And we should really challenge ourselves regularly on the things that we do. And that is something that I find as a Christian, as I grow in my faith and my knowledge of scripture, there's a lot of things that I was okay with as a young Christian that now I'm not okay with. And I think that's just because God's working on us, you know, as we get get more mature in our faith that we're kind of able to like kind of look at some of these other areas in our life that maybe he was dealing with a bigger issue before but now you know he's kind of honing you in and there's also other areas where maybe you thought it was bad before but then you realize maybe in moderation it's it's not actually a sin and and different things like that so there is some growth in maturity you know the weaker brother in scripture is usually the one refraining from certain things, but that doesn't always mean that that's the weaker brother. It's just that maybe they're overly sensitive to a lot of things and they're worried, you know, and it's really has to do a lot with this pagan worship. You know, a lot of the weaker brothers are those who are afraid of like maybe not doing Jewish practices or eating, you know, meat that they shouldn't eat and things like that. Like it takes time for people to really grow and kind of solidify in their doctrine and their faith. And, um, so we're going to change. And I think that you as a Christian should always be open to change. Don't just assume that your stance on Halloween right now is maybe the correct one. Um, and, and be discerning even in the sources that you're studying, because sometimes we can quickly find an article that agrees with what we already agree with and then run with it and be good. So I I think we need to be willing to be challenged and, um, you know, really, again, just strongly desire to be submissive, but also avoiding judgment on others and seeing that people can have strong convictions and we need to honor those convictions. If you have a friend that's really, you know, strongly convicted in a certain area about maybe not doing anything Halloween, don't try to push them to do Halloween stuff and be like, oh, it's okay, it's fine, because you're actually causing them to sin. You know, the Bible says that if you're doing that, you're causing them to sin because you can essentially sin against your own conscience. Like, I mean, it's a sin against God, but if you think something is a sin, even if it's not a sin and you do it, you're sinning. I believe that's like Romans 13 or 14. But so there, so there is a way of sinning, even if it's not actually a sin. If you think it's a sin and you do it, you're sinning because you're breaking what you think is a sin, if that makes sense. So, you know, don't encourage people that have strong convictions to sin against and, and violate their conscience. Like that's something that you can point them in a direction where you can say, hey, let's study this more and stuff, but try not to encourage them to go against their conscience. They have that conscience. And then we also, on the other side, need to realize that maybe our conscience is uh, seared a bit and desensitized to things that we ought to be sensitized to. And, And I think the more that you're in scripture and the more you see the glory and the holiness of God, the more the things that are of the world and pagan and wicked and evil and all that kind of stuff that are not glorifying God, the more you see the contrast. So it's something that we really need to wrestle with. And I think that people can fall into either camp because it's easy. Either you just, it doesn't matter, we can do whatever we want. And that's licentiousness. But it's not liberty. It's not Christian liberty. It's just, yeah, there is no law. We can do whatever we want. 
but then you can also quickly fall into a strict legalism where it's just easier to say no to all these things and draw hard lines without really doing much of the work. So we just need to be careful of doing, you know, either side. I will, I will tell you right now, kind of where we're at, Halloween is not my favorite holiday. I really don't like it. I never have. Um, my children like to dress up and wear a costume, but it's always, you know, maybe a superhero or a video game character or just something kind of silly um, and get uh, candy that way. If we even go trick-or-treating, we live usually in the country, so there's, like, we would have to go to a neighborhood to trick-or-treat, so a lot of times we go to maybe, like, a fall festival or something like that where they can get candy. Um, and then I usually put the candy up in a bucket above the fridge because I don't want them eating candy for five days straight. Um, and then I eat all the almond joys. But, you know, so we kind of balance it. I, I hate watching like cable TV during Halloween because they always advertise the really creepy shows. And it's really important to me that I do not sear my children's consciences and make them desensitize to evil and wicked things. And it's not funny to scare kids with creepy things. Like, you can jump out and scare them and do things like that. You know, the jump scare thing is fine. But if what's scaring them is really like a wicked mask, I saw ugh, I saw a heartbreaking video from a daycare where this daycare worker was wearing, like, I think it was a scream mask. I can't really remember. But she was going to these little toddlers and just putting it in their face. And they were just terrified and screaming. And it broke my heart and made me so angry that's not okay. That's not, that's not good scaring. <laughs> if there is such a thing, it, it's not, um, you know, innocent in any way. Um, you're really doing some damage and there's no reason that creepy things are creepy. So, you know, I'm afraid of centipedes. My kids like to make fun of me because I'm afraid of centipedes. Centipedes are made by God as well as bats and cats and things like that. So there are things that are scary and creepy like spiders that are innocent but there's also masks that are meant to be gory and creepy and all that kind of stuff. And, and I do strongly believe that are, that those are things that we should avoid as Christians because they are, I don't think you can argue that they are God glorifying, but if you think they are, I'd be interested to hear your point of view and why that is. And I would also love to hear, you know, what you guys do for Halloween and maybe what your convictions are, maybe how you your convictions have changed over the years as, as you've grown in the knowledge of scripture and of the Lord. And, you know, maybe that's very different for you. And again, it depends on your background, where you're at. There's a lot of things that are involved in that. But I really hope that this episode maybe gave you some more food for thought, maybe something to ponder, maybe some rabbit trails to go deep in. I will link um, a few articles that I resourced in the description if you want to dig further Maybe next year, if I think ahead long enough, I'll do maybe a more in-depth study on this. I know there are some others out there. I think Mike Winger has one, which I haven't really watched. I haven't had the time for that. But, you know, I think there are some good studies out there. And, and people are pulling from different sources. And again, sometimes these sources are flawed in their conclusions from the get-go. So, you know, do with that as you will. Now, I'm also going to plug a new podcast that's coming out. I'm super excited about I'm involved with it. It's me and a couple of my friends um, that are, well, we're book nerds, Lord of the Ring nerds, especially. It's um, called The Literary Baptists, and we just have a, we're having a good time right now recording. We're going through the Similarion, which is like kind of the pre-myth history of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit 
So um, we're kind of going through that book, discussing, you know, the book itself, obviously, the things in the book, and then kind of relating a little bit of what it has to do to our theology and, you know, for or against, and just kind of having some good, you know, banter about that there. So look forward to that. Should be coming out here in the next few weeks. I'm not really sure. We're recording some episodes ahead of time. But if you're a Tolkien book nerd like I am, um, I hope you would enjoy it and definitely check us out. So, you know, thanks, friends. This was a longer podcast episode, but there was a lot of meat to get through. And that was only just a small glimpse of the stuff that I studied. So there's a lot out there. It was really quite a bit, but. I really hope it was clear to you, and, um, you know, I, I hope that the Lord blesses you in your journey as you decide for yourself and your family how you're going to go forward, and, and I really pray, um, you know, that you have a submissive and teachable heart, and that you're willing to glorify God and go out of your comfort zone if you need to, to evangelize or, you know, cut out things that maybe you love that you don't want to get rid of, whatever it might be. Maybe just keep doing what you're doing and maybe what you're doing is just fine. So, um, thank you friends for listening. I pray, you know, that the Lord blesses you and that you continue to stay grass-fed and grace-led.